you have your copy of God's Word, uh, let me invite you to open up to the book of First Peter this morning. And we're going to be looking at chapter 5, uh, in particular the first 11 verses uh, in that text. Uh, if you're new with us and just joining, uh, we are usually in a series on the book of Colossians. We've taken a, a two-week hiatus from that book. Uh, so that we can talk about a little bit, uh, hopefully not too boringly, about our polity and our governance. We're in the process of receiving nominations for men that would come and serve uh, as an elder uh, here at Travis. We believe in a plurality of elders, so multiple men standing beside each other, shoulder to shoulder, arms locked together. And so last week we talked and focused primarily on the character of what those elders should look like. And so today we're gonna sort of shift the gear a little bit and talk about that duty. Now, in the midst of 1 Peter 5, it follows four previous chapters in that book where Peter talks about suffering. He talks about how there's a day that they were experiencing then and there's a day that's going to come where all Christians are gonna learn to live in a very post-Christian culture. And they're going to be on the receiving end of, of persecution. They're going to be on the receiving end of suffering. They're going to be on the receiving end of very difficult times. And so one of the things that Peter does is he reminds them of, of where they are currently. He reminds them that it's not going to really get any better. And then embedded in the midst of that, he randomly sort of seems to pick up in chapter 5 this qualification for elders, and which really doesn't necessarily make sense. And it sort of seems out of place when, when you read the whole book sort of in, in one setting. So he ends and starts with suffering. He qualifies elders. And then in the midst of that suffering, here's why you have to have these kinds of elders. And then here's what I want you to do with all your fears and your anxieties that exist. Not just from calling elders, but more importantly, on how to live in a very post-Christian world. And so much of what Peter does in this moment, I, I think is extremely helpful for us, especially, especially in the context of this church. Where we're watching over the, the past few weeks as many of our TCU students are, are gathering, many of them are participating in, in Greek sorority life. And the goal is that, that we would be some kind of salt and light on that campus, that we would live out our faith with, without being weird about it without being strange and, and awkward, yet we're engaging in the culture that we're in, the workplaces that you find yourself in, out in culture, people that, that don't know the Lord, that, that maybe are hostile to what you believe and, and your convictions. And how do you faithfully live out the gospel in front of them? And so Peter ends chapter four talking about this suffering as a Christian. And he ends in 19 where he just says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing so. And then he makes this transition, which is just really weird, but he, but he begins to talk about elders. And I wanna show you why here in just a moment, but I wanna look at the text real briefly. And so pick up with me in verse one of 1 Peter 5, where Peter says this. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercise oversight, but not under compulsion, do it willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those who would be in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So one of the first things that I want you to see is just the responsibility of an elder that exists really in verse one and the first half of verse two. 
Now, when Peter wrote this, he, he wrote it with an Old Testament book, an Old Testament prophet in mind, the prophet Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel, there are several interactions where Ezekiel is caught up in these weird uh, literal dreams where God is speaking to him in very unique ways in, in Ezekiel 8 and Ezekiel 34. And in these characterizations where God is speaking to him through these angelic beings, he, he is reminding Ezekiel of a couple of things that I think are extremely helpful in helping us understand this phrase, shepherd the flock of God. And so in Ezekiel 34, or Ezekiel 9 rather, uh, he, he gets this dream from this angel and the angel reveals to him that the elders amongst Ezekiel's day, they're doing what he refers to in the text in about verse 9, they are committing these vile abominations before the Lord. And they are forgetting that, that these elders that existed in that time, they, they have sort of forgotten the idea because God was very distant from them in their culture. They had, it seemed to be that they had been forsaken by God. And so these elders were, were doing very wicked things. They were living as if God couldn't see into the dark corners of, of their ministries and their lives. And, and so he was revealing, God was speaking to Ezekiel, re, uh, revealing these things to him. And I think it points to a couple of things. First and foremost, what it means to shepherd the flock of God is that elders that are brought forth, they must be men that walk with character and integrity before the Lord. Meaning what they do in the dark when no one else is looking because God is in the, the business of bringing to dark, but what's done in the dark, bringing it to the light. And so what that means is they're the same people on the public stage and in the public sphere that they are when nobody else is looking. That there are no vile abominations, if you will, before them. And so they must have character. They must understand their call to shepherd the flock of God. Ezekiel 34 talks about it in this sense where he talks about these men, they, they just forgot their calling. And they were men that were tasked with preaching the word of God, the Old Testament in particular, and they just sort of gave up on it. They were tasked with shepherding the people and caring for the sick and the wounded and leading them to greener pastures. And these guys were just like, you know what? We're really not gonna do that. We're gonna assume the title and the role as being one of the elders and the overseers during that time, but we're really not gonna fulfill the duties that God has called us to. We're gonna walk away from the responsibilities that God has given us. And so they began to misunderstand their call according to Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 4. But then most importantly, what Ezekiel has helpful us in understanding, what does it mean to shepherd the household of God? These elders in Ezekiel 34, they had forgotten for a moment that they were called to mimic the chief shepherd amongst them. That they were called to be imitators, if you will. He makes this statement in Ezekiel 34, 11. He says, for the Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. I am a shepherd who seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep. When they have been scattered, I, I go and get them. And for whatever reason, these men at this time were not doing what God had called them to do. They weren't fulfilling their calling. They were abandoning their responsibility. And most importantly, they weren't imitating their chief shepherd. And so these men must understand that their role to fulfill what it is that God has faithfully declared in his word. But then I want you to notice in verse two and verse three, not just the responsibility, but, but what that responsibility ultimately means. He says, as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly. 
Not domineering over those in your charge, but, but being examples to the flock. What he does in describing what it means to be a shepherd faithful to the flock, to shepherd the people that God has, has given you. He says, listen, you do it as God would do and you don't do it for shameful gain. In other words, there, there's no motivation for uh, enriching the pocketbooks. There's no motivation for growing a social media profile. There's no motivation for ill-gotten gain under any of those things. This past two weeks ago, I spoke at a, a chapel at a Baptist university and I asked uh, the president at the end, we were having lunch. I said, what can I, what can I do for you? He'd asked me, what can I do for you as a pastor? And so I reciprocated that question and said, well, what can I do for you? And how can I best serve you guys in your mission? And he said, nothing, I don't need anything from you. He said, just continue being someone that is not trying to grow a profile, that is not trying to become famous, that is not trying to enrich their pocketbooks. Just keep being a faithful pastor. And I thought how, how refreshing that was in that moment because I, my wife often prays that I'll never get famous and, uh, and any of those things and grow uh, an influence of those things. Just the, the quietness that comes with serving and existing in the context of the local church, loving the people that God has given you and just seeking to be a faithful presence where you are. And so Peter says, listen, these guys don't know shameful gain, but to do it eagerly. There's no twisting of arm. There's no, there's no begging in that moment. Would you please become an elder? Would you please come to serve in this place? It's this understanding that service is always a privilege for the people of God. That anytime we get to serve doing anything that God calls us to do, it is always an honor and a privilege, no matter how lowly that task may be seen. No matter if no one ever sees it, no matter if it, if it ever ends up on the platform or, or where people can, can watch it and, and say thank you, it's just this understanding that I'm going to serve as God has called me to serve with a sense of eagerness and I'm not going to dominate those who are over and under my stead. But the elder and the, and the minister and, and the teacher, that, that they're not CEOs, they're not COOs, they're not CFOs, they're not any of those things. It's, this is not a business in which we're trying to run, but this is a church in which God has called us to shepherd and to come alongside. And the posture of the elder ought to always be not domination and not lordship over other people, but it ought to be one of service. Can I and will you let me wash your feet? What needs in your life can, can I meet spiritually? Where, where is it in your life that you're not trusting in the Lord? And how can I lead you down that path of truth and, and righteousness and, and understanding? It's a sense of soul care that exists in the life of the elder. He doesn't dominate those that are in his charge, but he is an example to the flock in humility and in service and kindness and goodness, constantly seeking to reflect the goodness of our God. And then he says in verse four, and when the chief shepherds appear, shepherd appears, you are going to receive the unfading crown of glory. There are times when this man will be motivated primarily by duty. That he's got responsibilities and he's got a job description, if you will. Things are laid out in scripture and there's a sense in which you, you do the things that you, you just don't want to do. There are aspects of being an elder or a pastor. There are aspects of, of being parents or students that, that you don't necessarily enjoy those things, but, but you do them anyway because you know that you should. And so you do them out of duty. But, but I think the warning here or the reminder here from Peter is we don't labor and we don't strive to do things primarily out of duty. We do it for something bigger than that. 
And in this moment, what Peter is doing, he's saying, listen, at some point, at the end of it all, at the end of the, of the eschaton that scholars call, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The prize, my friends, is Jesus. The treasure, the jewel on your crown, it is and always has been Jesus. And so you labor and you strive to receive that unfading crown of glory, doing it for, for his kingdom and for his service and for his namesake and for his righteousness, because one day when he appears, you will receive that. And then notice verse five, he shifts out of the elders and he begins to speak to the congregation. And this is where some of you are gonna get a little bit uncomfortable and start fidgeting and breaking eye contact with me, as I can already tell, because you read ahead. He says this, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humility and submission were the constant posture and rhythm of Jesus in his earthly kingdom. He was led out into the desert at one point by the devil himself. And the devil said, if you just do this, I will give you all of these things. And, and you can forsake, if you will, in this moment. And you can be in charge of everyone. You can rule and reign and I will give you dominion and I will give you authority. Yet Jesus in that moment, he, he denied the temptation of the devil himself. And he quotes scripture back to him. And he temporarily resisted taking the reins of all of the world because Jesus in this moment, he was very quite content to just increase in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and in favor with man, as Luke 2.42 says. To put himself as one that was under authority in that moment. I think the issue of, of authority is one of the most difficult and complex things for us to grasp as human beings. Because truly none of us really enjoys submitting to someone else. When we have our, our vision and our, and our idea, we want to see that executed as, as best it can. And, and when that vision or that understanding, it, it butts up against something else or someone else. It, it's where the rubber sort of meets the road. And it is perhaps one of the most difficult things that we can do to be subject in this moment, understanding this. That when the congregation recognizes someone that would serve in the biblical New Testament office, which there's only two that exist in all the Bible, the role of pastor, elder, and deacon, that's it. No other offices exist in the Bible. The office of pastor and elder and the office of deacon. And so what Peter is doing in this moment, he's saying, listen, you are about to suffer even more as a Christian. You are about to go through hard and difficult times. And so I'm going to put elders over you. And they're going to sort of be my, my hands and my feet and my, my mouthpiece, if you will, and sort of guiding and caring for the life and the welfare of the church as they submit to the lordship of Jesus. Therefore, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, if you were to read that as literal as possible and say, well, a uh, pastor up here is only 40 years old and I'm 80 years old and I'm older than him so that I don't have to submit to him, I got good news for you. That's why we have really old elders like Larry Thompson and Jim Smith and you'll just submit to them. If age is the issue, we've got you covered, I promise. And so you who are younger, clothe yourselves with all humility for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then I want you to notice how he transitions in verse six. And I think this is beautiful in every way. He says, 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he, he cares for you. To humble yourself under his mighty hand means that I'm trusting his purpose and plan. I'm trusting the circumstances that are before me, that they're, they're under his authority. And so I'm gonna lower myself before that. I'm gonna believe in his goodness, that he's kind and that he's gracious. Why? So that the proper time, the, the more humble I, 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 the more trust that I put in him, the more I clothe myself with humility in his proper time, he will elevate me and he will exalt me to where he needs me to be. But I want you to notice something about verse seven that I've never noticed before. In verse 7, he assumes that the church at large as a whole, that every single person in the church has a certain level of anxiety that exists within their hearts and their minds. It's not an assumption that just some people have anxieties and some people don't. It's not an assumption that, that some perhaps have some, some mental health things that they have to work on. It's an assumption that, that the whole church to some degree has something that they're struggling with individually, privately, and even collectively. And so he says, for you, church, assuming all of you, you do. And, and here's the reality that we've seen, I think has changed over the past 10 years. I think anxiety levels have always been high. I think what we're seeing now is a shift with millennials and with Gen Zers who are just a little bit more open to confessing and to talking about those anxieties. Whereas I think a lot of times in previous generations, you were taught, don't say anything. You keep that to yourself and you process it yourself and you figure it out yourself. And maybe if you're lucky, you have one person or a spouse that can sort of help you navigate through that thing. But what we're seeing is the shift that, that people are more prone to saying, I, I mean, I struggle with like anxious thoughts. I, I'm worried. And, and so here's the, here's the question. Peter assumes that all of the church in some form or fashion has anxiety. And he says, cast it upon him. And here's the million dollar question. When does my, my one anxious thought move to where it becomes sinful before God? Where is my, my one worry? What's the line that's crossed somewhere along the line where it becomes an offense before God? And so years ago, this question sort of perplexed me and sort of sent me down a rabbit hole. And through good counsel of biblical counselors that love the word of God, a couple of things that I've sort of gleaned from, and there are questions that, that I ask myself from time to time to make sure that I'm navigating. And I wanna share some of these questions with you up on the screen. The question before us is when does our anxiety, when does the depression, when does it become sinful before God? Number one is this, does it come from or cause a doubting of God's goodness? Is the thing that I'm, that I'm working through, is it causing me to question the very character and the very nature of God? And maybe I've begun to believe the lie that God does not want what's best for me. In fact, God wishes to inflict harm and, and suffering uh, because he's, he's uh, not a good God, but, but he enjoys watching people and seeing people suffer. Does it cause me to question, to doubt the goodness of God? Secondly, does it come from or cause trying to control things that are God's to, term, to determine? 
In other words, things are so out of control of my life. I am so trying to control them and I'm doing everything within my power to assert myself, to, to assert my dominance into the situation, whatever that is. And it's the root of that because I am failing to understand, to let God control the circumstance in front of me, to believe that he has me exactly where he wants me to be. That even in the midst of the uncertainty in my life, I'm right where I need to be in him. And if we are constantly trying to control things, I, I think perhaps, and I'm speaking to myself as well at times and in seasons, some of the most insecure, anxious filled people are always typically very controlling people. Am I failing to believe that God who is good? Am I failing to believe that it's my time to control things? Question number three to ask is, is your anxiety rooted in other sins? I mean, are you struggling and can't figure out bitterness or greed? Are you constantly jealous? Are you always discontent, always dissatisfied? These things will ultimately lead to a very anxious posture uh, that you live under and a weight that, that, that takes over in your life. Fourthly, is there a sense of entitlement comparing yourself to other people? You know that it is a, a medical and a scientific fact. It is undisputable that non-Christian scientists, not, not jockeying for a case to make a biblical case, people that are far from God that don't know the Lord, yet there are also scientists and medical professionals who know the Lord, who agree with the research that social media, TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and all of these things, it is rewiring our brain and it is making us a more anxious people. And so I'm not advocating that you, you get rid of all of those things. What I am advocating is all things in moderation and to have boundaries in your life and systems in your life because the more you look at it, the more you compare yourself to other people and then the more you feel bad about yourself and that they have something that you don't have. Or they have a house or, or took a vacation that you wish you could have. Or they had this friend group at, at school or at work and you don't have. And so we fall into this trap of constantly comparing ourselves to others as it rewires how we think and what we think about. Fifthly, I would say this, that oftentimes anxious people, it is the result of shame about or, or fear of being found out for another sin. Meaning there is something that, that you're dabbling with in the, in the darker places of your life that no one can see, but God sees and, and you know what those things are. And, and when we leave those sins unchecked before a holy and righteous God, before God's people, what it will inevitably do is it will always make us a more depressed. It will always make us a more anxious people because of it. And so here's the solution to that. Confess your sins to one another. For he is faithful and just. And in the process of confession, God brings healing somewhere in the midst of that miraculously. For those that were walking in the dark, they have now been exposed. And it is better to confess that sin than to be found out from that sin. And so we proclaim it to one another and we offer forgiveness and we walk in grace besides one another. And lastly, I want to say this, that oftentimes within it, does your anxiety, does it result in sins of omission? And what sins of omission is, it's when we know what we should do. We know the right thing, 
But a sin of omission is knowing the right thing and then not doing the right thing that we know that we should do. And so when we, we delay those things, when we know the right thing, but we don't do it, what it will do internally with us, what it will do mentally within us is it will cause us to be a more anxious, uptight people. When we know the right way, but we choose to do nothing, not, not the opposite of that, we just simply choose to do nothing about it. It will make us more anxious. But I want you to see in the midst of this verse, he says this phrase to cast all your anxieties on him and, and he qualifies it. Why, why cast all your anxieties at the feet of Jesus? Well, the short answer to that is found in the latter half of that verse, because he cares for you. Because he is concerned for you. Because he already knows your anxious thoughts even before you tell him, but he wants relationship with you and, and he loves you and he's concerned about you and he wants to see you flourish and he wants to see you do well in life and he, he wants to see you prosper and, and to succeed in all things. And so he says, he implores, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He goes on in verse eight and he says, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I find it interesting that in this command, Peter, he likens the devil to the lion. A lion on the prowl and, and he's choosing this image in this moment because typically in the Bible, it refers to Jesus as the lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And so what Peter is doing is he is reminding us in this moment that, that the devil, our adversary, he is a counterfeit. He's, not, he, he's powerful in the sense of, of he has dominion in this world for, for this temporary time. And, and we must not underestimate him. All he wants to do is to destroy you. He doesn't want to crush your hopes and dreams, though, though that's a part of it. He doesn't want to just break up your marriages, though, though that's a part of it. He doesn't just want to ruin your finances, though, though that's a part of it. No, he, he wants to kill you and destroy you in every which way. He wants you to, to cease to exist in every which way. And how he does that is he sort of slowly erodes at our, our walk and our holiness with the Lord and our pursuit of him. It says that he prowls around like this roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But then notice what Peter says. He's not saying focus all of your attention on what the devil is doing in your life. But he says the admonition here is to resist him. Firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, what he's saying is one of the ways in which we have unity in the faith is that we are united globally with Christians all around the world. We are united with them in suffering because suffering is one of the chief marks of the Christian. That it's not the, the goal of life to, to have ease and, and, and to have a great retirement account and a house and, and this life of just nothing but pleasure. No, the goal is, is that I would enter into and alongside the sufferings of Jesus along with the rest of the church. That I would stand with them side by side in arms, understanding that all throughout church history, currently even now in other parts of the world, what brings us together and what comforts us is this idea that we are being experiencing the same thing that our brotherhood throughout the world is. And then I want you to notice verses 10 and 11 where he says this, and after you have suffered a little while, 
the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I think verse 10 here in this moment is this picture of what grace looks like. Here's what I think verse 10 means and what it speaks to when he uses words like he will restore, he will confirm, he will strengthen, he, he will establish you. Could perhaps be one of the most hopeful verses in all of the New Testament for those of you who are just going through the thick of it right now. And experiencing hardships and hard times and, and you're experiencing suffering maybe to a degree in which you haven't and things just aren't clicking and they're not right. What verse 10 means is simply this, your present sufferings are intimately connected to his eternal glory. That there's purpose in them. And the reality is we don't always know what that purpose is this side of the cross. We don't know what God's doing all the time and we don't understand it all the time, but, but he puts us through it to refine us, to make us look more like Jesus. And I think sometimes, I think what could be true of verse 10 is those of you within this lifetime, those of you who suffer the most, those of you who, who endure the most and remain faithful to the end, can you imagine what it's gonna look like at the end of the day where he restores the worst of the worst, the, the ones that are, that are the most immoral, who have done the most wrongs. He, he says, you suffer a little while because someday Christ is going to restore it. He's going to build something even greater in your life. He's going to confirm something and strengthen something. And he will establish you for all of eternity. Well, there's no more weeping and there's no more wailing. There's no more sin. There's no more sorrow. There's no more death. There's, there's no more sickness. There's no more disease. That all things have been made right, been made through him and for him and, and to him. And one day we will see God complete the work that he started in us today. That our present sufferings are connected to his glory and his worthiness. And then how else would Peter end in verse 11 by just simply stating to him, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so Peter's preparing his people for a time of hardship. He's acknowledging the, the hardship before them. And he says, in the midst of that hardship, he says, you need elders. You need a plurality of elders. It's an elders with an S, not just one guy, but multiple guys standing alongside. You, you put yourself under their authority, their watch care. And if they are faithful shepherds, listening to the Lord, following the Lord together, using that collective wisdom to come alongside. He says, you, you younger ones, you, you listen, you submit to those elders as they submit to the Lordship of Christ. See, this is the weight of what you're doing right now and you recommend these things. We didn't talk about this because we're out of time, but earlier on in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel makes this statement where he, he talks about how judgment from the Lord, you know where it begins? Not with your pagan neighbor, not with the person in your fraternity house or sorority house that's far from God. Judgment doesn't begin with them. But according to Ezekiel 8, he says, judgment begins in the house of God. So when and if the Lord is gonna judge us and judge the world, guess where he starts? It's the weight of it. And this is what he has in mind when he, when he talks about 
these men that you bring before when he talks about all of these behaviors and these things that we must lean into and pursue that, that his judgment begins in the house of the Lord. So we want to pray to that end that we would just be faithful and he would spare us from his judgment. We'd be faithful in following him and proclaiming his name and, and not committing sins of omission, knowing what we should do, but just choosing not to do it. Choosing not to do anything about it. And so I want to challenge you. I don't want you to feel this is in a heavy-handed way, but I, I want to sort of linger here for a moment in a time of response. Are there things in your life that you know God is asking you to do, but you, you just said, I'm not doing that right now. And I'm telling you, it's probably causing you to be a more anxious person. Maybe causing you to be a, a, a bitter person or a more discontent person. When we, when we run from the Lord and we don't do the things that he makes us do, he has a way sometimes of, of making us miserable in the process. And so I wonder today if things might come to your mind. My prayer for us today and this week is that we would walk forward together as a church, walking faithfully with him, leaning into his grace, finding comfort in his spirit, but being on mission with him this week. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the good things that you have done in the life of this church. We know that our very best years are not behind us in any way, but ahead of us. So Father, would you help us as a church family? Would you help us faithfully live on mission? Would you help us faithfully support and to encourage one another? Would you help us be faithful and just being real with our, our walks and, and the confession of sin and coming alongside brothers and sisters that may be weak and weary, may be joyful and happy and content. Father, I pray that you would just help us capture that, that vision of what it means to be a healthy, functioning church. And I pray it begins in this process as we discern who would come on with us to serve uh, in this office that you have ordained in your word. And I ask that you would help us in Christ's name. Amen.